listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. in Psalm 14 this morning, and I've entitled the message, Till There Is No God But Me. Till There Is No God But Me. Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who desires good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Finally, verse 7. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. As we look at Psalm 14, we need to understand that when it was written 3,000 years ago, there were not people running around considering the possibility of being atheist. No one 3,000 years ago, particularly in Israel, as David the psalmist is writing to the people of God and looking forward, writing to us. No one was saying there is no God. No, no one. And while many have used this text to accost and shame those who, uh, out there who publicly and proudly do not believe in God, that is not the original intent of the text. There were no atheists in Israel. Not one single atheist in Israel 3,000 years ago. This would have been unheard of. But things are different in the day and age in which we live. In fact, all the smart people are atheists. The fools are those who think and act like there is a God. Charles Taylor, who wrote The Secular Age, said that in a brief span of 300 years, we went from the impossibility of not believing in God. In other words, there was a time in history when it was impossible not to believe in God, quickly shifted to the possibility of not believing in God, to the impossibility of believing in God. Did you get that? In 300 years, there was this there was this shift on the axis of history that went from the impossibility of not believing in God to the possibility of not believing in God to the impossibility of believing in God. I know that may sound weird to you. Um, I had to think about it several times myself as Charles Taylor said that, but it shows you this shift in the way that we think, but it's also against the backdrop of David saying these things when there are no atheists for him to say it to. This text was written when it was impossible not to believe in God. And if we're honest, the predominant discourse of our current cultural mentality is that it is quite frankly impossible to believe in God. So what do we make of this text if we're going to study it in its context? David, listen carefully, David is writing 
to people who culturally, theologically, institutionally, and even intellectually would say with their words in their halls of academia and religion that they believe in God. But practically and internally, they had secret longings that would say that they didn't. Did you hear that? He's writing to people and everybody they talked to and everything they read and all of their institutions and all of their religion and all of their theology, they would say, oh yes, we believe in God. But if you look at the, the secrets that dwell in their hearts, which is driving how we live, they would say that they do not believe in God. And that was the real motive that guided everything in their life. I want to break these seven verses down into four parts. Number one, we see in verse one, the secret longings of a practical atheist. The secret longings of a practical atheist. David makes it clear. And by the way, this is a mirror, uh, save a few words, um, uh, text of uh, Psalm 53. You could also read uh, Psalm chapter one if you want to understand uh, the lack of belief in God as it relates to the suppression of truth and uh, literally us becoming unwise as human beings. So the secret longings of a practical atheist. The first thing he says is this, the fool, the fool. Now what does the word fool mean? If you look at it in its various forms, the word fool means the extinction of life. We think when we say that somebody's a fool, they're just a stark raving mad idiot or they're crazy or they're going to do something weird and David reduces it down to just this one thing. The fool has said in his heart that there is no God. But what is the fool? The word fool is like a, a dried up plant. Like this limb that I picked up in the parking lot or these leaves that I picked up in the parking lot. This is dead. This used to be alive. This used to have the energy of life in it. But a fool is like a withered up plant that doesn't have, like one old commentator said, the juices of life flowing through it. There, there are none of the chemicals that would naturally be in this. You can put it in the sunshine. You can stick it in some Water, I doubt that this thing is going to grow. In fact, I believe it's just quite frankly dead and brittle. And, and so when, when the psalmist says that, that the, the fool, and he uses that word, he's talking about uh, comparing it to a, a dried up plant that should have life in it, but does not. In other words, David is saying that the fool is someone who is spiritually dead. Someone who is spiritually blind that cannot see Spiritual things, someone that is spiritually deaf who cannot hear spiritual things, who cannot realize all that God is communicating to them, Romans chapter 1, through creation and through revelation. They can't see it, they can't hear it, it finds no place of registry. The opposite of what we were created to be. The very breath of God was breathed into our lungs. Adam was alive. He was vibrant. He was awake. He was aware. He named the animals. He was in awe of creation. He was enthralled relationally with Eve. And then in Genesis 3, death invaded. And man has fallen and alienated from the life 
of God because of sin. And that is what David in this text is calling the fool. So the fool is one who doesn't have the life of God in him. The fool is one who was created to have the life of God in him, who's created to relate to God, to communicate with God, to commune with God, to find fulfillment in, to be in love with God. But there has been a complete change of direction. The second thing he says in the text, the fool is said in his heart. The fool is said secretly, not openly. The fool has said deep within. That place where he thinks and doubts and imagines and wishes and longs for and even decides. The fool hath said in the secret place of his heart. One commentator from centuries ago, W.S. Plummer, said, The wish is the father of thought. In other words, we say that we're rational, right? We say that we're not emotional. We don't like to hear the word heart. We want to hear the word truth, right? Although the word heart is used 500 plus times in the Old Testament alone. And he's saying the fool is saying something. He's hearing things and he's got stuff packed in his head and he's got books on, in his library and in his shelf and he's a part of institutions that say they believe certain things. But the fool is said deep in his heart there is no God. And again, Plummer said, the, the wish is the father of the thought. In other words, the desires of your heart captivate us and drive the way that we really think, although we can process information and claim that as our thoughts. Plummer said, the heart has great power. The fool has said in his heart, he's in Israel, he's around other Jews, they are the people of the book. They are the people of God. They are the people that God raised up. But they, some, are saying in their heart, in the way that they live practically, there is no God. Whatever it is that drives our life, our thoughts, our motives, our decisions, ultimately originates in the heart. That's why that word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you, Lord, that the word is having an impact on my heart. David is not talking about an atheism of understanding, but an atheism of heart, an atheist of desire. In fact, if you go back to uh, Psalm chapter 10, you can see it in verse 11. And, and in Psalm 13, he says, um, he says in his heart, God has forgotten. That is an atheism. He's saying in his heart, and his heart is informing his life. His heart is informing his actions. His heart is informing the way that his eyes and his mind process the information that he even reads. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Verse 13, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account. God's not going to hold me accountable. The fool, the one without spiritual life, the one that is not living the way that God created them to live, the one that is not functioning the way that God created him to function, says in the deep recesses of his soul, deep within him, in his heart, that there is no God. Now, the two words there is were added by the translator so that we who speak the English language could understand it. So they're taking the Hebrew text that is a very simple 
text and they're translating into the English language and literally in the Hebrew text, the fool says in his heart, no God. No God. Let there be no God. I wish there was no God. No Elohim. What the text says. Now, perhaps they would agree that there is a self-existent, independent, eternal being. But that is not Elohim. There is not, they are saying, a God who will just... Yes, there's a God in heaven. Yes, there's a God who exists. Yes, there's a God who perhaps created everything. But there is not this Elohim God who will judge. There is not this Elohim God who presides over everything. There is not this Elohim God who governs all things. Who is a God of governance and providence. Who is involved in the affairs of man. And who is somehow going to hold me accountable for my actions. There's not a God like that. No God. There is not a God who really cares and who is practically involved in the cares of mankind. Stephen Sharnock, the author of the two-volume set that, that I have, and it was more volumes uh, before, but um, the existence and attributes of God said, but speaking of the fool who has said in his heart, no God, he says, but he has tampered with his own heart to bring it to that persuasion and smothered in himself those notices of deity. He went on to say, no man is exempt from the spice of atheism. There is this place at the core of human existence that longs to be God. And it is in every single one of us. There is, there, there is this place at the core of human existence that longs to be God. In fact, if you go to Genesis 3, the offer to Eve from the serpent was this. You will be like God. And then when, when we tamper with our hearts, we end up in Romans 1 where we worship what? The creature instead of the creator. And we put ourselves in the place of God. You will be like God. There's something inside of us that wants to cast off restraint. Read Psalm chapter 2. To be independent. To be, to be, to be self-determinist. I said it three times on purpose, by the way. Which is the heart of atheism, which screams, you can't tell me what to do. There is no God over me who can tell me what to do. You are not God. I am God. You are not in control. I am in control. You will not tell me who I am or what I am. I will determine who I am or what I am. And I will do what I want to do. The tragedy is this. You say, what's that got to do with the church? The tragedy is this, that we are these informational and institutional and theoretical and even theological Christians, but our heart tell, tells a different story about us. We know stuff. We say stuff. 
We were part of organizations and alliances. We go to different meetings and we identify with different movements. But if the truth were known, our heart would tell a different story. Yes, we go to meetings and we gather and we say we're Christians. But then we go home and defy everything that is reflective of the will and nature of God. We have no regard for the condition of our heart. And we rely on our religious ritual. Well, I know the catechisms. I must be saved. I prayed the sinner's prayer. I must be saved. I joined the church. I must be saved. I was baptized as an infant. I must be saved. I was baptized as an adult. I must be saved. I was baptized twice. I must be saved. I tithe. I must be saved. People think highly of me. I must be be saved. People think I'm a good Christian. I must be saved. But what of our heart? We have the right view of all the issues that could possibly matter. We speak boldly and precisely and truthfully and impressively. But what about the heart? What is really going on in my heart? What happens when I have a fallen out with my brother? (laughs) What do I do? I come up with a reason to avoid him. When Matthew 18, the Bible that I say I believe, says that if I've got a problem with my brother, I get up off my backside and as uncomfortable as it may feel, I go to my brother and I say, man, let's work this out. Right. Right. But there's something in my heart that justifies me not doing what the truth of God's Word says because there are these two people that are called me. This me that says a lot of stuff and this me that reads a lot of stuff and this me that that participates in a lot of stuff, but many times, many times it just doesn't take root. What is going on in my heart? And if the truth be known for most of us, Scripture really doesn't matter practically. It's just something that we say. Or when we want revenge... What's going on in our heart? Or when we gossip. When, when we have a three-way conversation that just involves two people. Right? When we just runs a brother or sister, a brother or sister. Don't talk about my brother. Don't talk about my sister. I've got two sisters and a brother. You you will not get a syllable out of your mouth about one of my siblings. My children, I don't want to hear it. You may have video evidence. I don't want to hear it. They're my children, right? Someone that is created in the image of God? Wait a minute. The fool has said, in his heart, there is no God. Therefore, I can, in my thoughts, in my revenge, in my gossip, in my dismissal of this individual, I can go to a place in my heart that says, I don't have to respond to them the right way, and I will just completely go to created in the image of God and unplug it and treat them the way my flesh wants to treat. 
as though I have said in my heart, there is no God. What about when lust invades? We respond as if there is no God because instead of running to the things that God has provided for us for connection and for relationship and even for intimacy, we run to so many places that the world throws at us. And believe it or not, dear brother or sister, you are saying in your heart in those moments that there is no God. You will find something besides Him to satisfy because He can't. We could go on with our list of greed and materialism and criticism and divisiveness. Could it be that we say we believe a lot of stuff and we read a lot of stuff and we identify with a lot of stuff, but at the end of the day, as David is talking to the people of Israel who would in no way say that they were atheists, could it be at the end of the day that many of us are just practical atheists and this text is exposing the secret longings of a practical atheist? And I just want to be happy. And if religion can make me happy, good for me. And if religion can't make me happy, I will find something else to make me happy that isn't God. Because many of us find ourselves in that place of the practical atheist. And God would say, God would say, this is us. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. I would venture to say that most of us in our impudence, in our impudence and our independence, in our ritual, in our religion, in our theology, and in our, in our liturgy, would believe that we have it together and want to convince one another that we have it all together. But our heart tells a different story. Our heart sings a different tune. And so what I want you to do today is try to set aside all of these external things that you think constitute your identity in Christ. And I want you to examine your heart this morning. The second thing the text shares with us in verse 2 is this, that the Lord looks down from heaven. So here's somebody saying, in his heart, there is no God. There is no one that is over me. There is not an Elohim God who is governing, and there is not an Elohim God who is providential. I'm the one that's controlling outcomes. I'm the one that's, that's pushing and pulling levers. I'm the one that's pulling the strings, not God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But the, the text tells us the, the Lord looks down. He's, he's hang, it's the picture is he's hanging over the ledge. He's looking down. As though he is over everything. As though he is over everything. Even the secret recesses of my heart. So the second thing we see is, is the roadblock called God that we all must Face the roadblock called God that we all must face. The text is telling us that the Lord looks down and it is a continuous act. We see it in Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 12. God is looking over the affairs of man before uh, there is this flood. And in Genesis chapter 11, when they're building this tower, God's looking down to see what in the world are they doing in the Tower of Babel? They're building this tower up into Heaven. He looks and sees everything continually, and from our vantage point, God is constantly evaluating. I don't believe that God 
is lacking information so that he has to gather information so that he has to evaluate anything but to help us understand him. The, the, the scriptures give us this picture of a God who is, who is looking and seeking to understand us, although I believe he fully understands us. The very thing that we wish to escape in our denial of God is impossible to escape. Our desire to be God and to be independent and to be self-governing, it is a place that is impossible to go to. Our desire to determine outcomes. Our desire to determine reality. Our, desi- our desire to defy nature and scripture. Our longing to be our own God must certainly end in failure. Because God is above us looking down from heaven. Every single person on the face of this planet must face this massive roadblock called God. Every one of us one day is going to stand before Him and it is His determination that determines our outcome, not ours. So the text is unfolding for us in verse 2. In response to a man who in the deep recesses of his soul, although he's playing religion on the outside, on the inside he's saying there is no God. God's response is, hmm, that's interesting. That's interesting. He's not going anywhere with it. He's not going to succeed with it. But that's interesting. The third thing we see in the text, also in verses 2 through 6, is the deadly impact of life without God. You see, when I say in my heart there is no God, which is a product of the fall, which is just the nature that is in me that was inherited from my parents, Adam and Eve, and my parents, Danny and Barbara, and that you inherited from your parents, this desire to be God is in essence what it means to be a sinner I will be God and I will not submit to God it's what it means to be fallen but the text gives us some words that help us understand the details of it more fully the deadly impact of life without God in verses 2 through 6 and let me just give you a bullet list here number one we do not understand or seek after God Apart from God, we do not understand or seek after God. That's what the text tells us. Apart from God, apart from His Spirit, apart from His Word, apart from the radical transformation of your heart and mind by the Spirit of God, we will not understand or seek after God. Apart from The transformation of a heart that says deep within it that there is no God and I want to be God and I want to be in control. Apart from Him giving me a new heart, there is no way that I can do anything but not understand and not seek after God. And some would say, well, what about religious people? What about people that have rituals? There are different religious forms and there there are different rituals that people practice and perhaps they are seeking after God but they're just seeking for him in the wrong place false religion is not to be viewed as some lesser form of seeking after God false religion is merely a form of worship that worships idolatry and that worships the self 
The prosperity gospel that so many of us have been stained by is self-worship. It's self-worship. The expectation that God should be doing what I want Him to do, and if He doesn't, He is not God, is self-worship. It's self-deification. So, let us not think that because there are religions that aren't focused on the gospel, that they are seeking after God. They are not. They are a man-centered and self-determinist. And their longing is to be free from an all-knowing, all-seeing, all-determining God who, who we must ultimately surrender to as Lord. The one who we are created to know and enjoy. is out of reach for us in and of ourselves. So, so what happens when I say I want to be God? What happens when I run into this roadblock called God? What, what is the deadly impact of life without God? We do not understand or seek after God. Secondly, we turn aside. J Jesus is the good shepherd. He says, come follow me. That is the invitation for us to come follow him. But we don't follow him. All we like sheep, Isaiah 53, have gone astray. We have not followed. We have abandoned God. We have abandoned our relationship with him. We have abandoned his word. We have abandoned his will. We have abandoned his, his authority over our lives. The deadly impact of life without God is that we turn aside. And then he says they are corrupt. The word corrupt is just another Hebrew word. It's an English word, but the, the Hebrew word for corrupt is, is the word sin. And it means, to, it means to, to have grown sour. It's a word for a dead carcass. We become spoiled and we stink. A sin. The deadly impact of life without God. And this deadly impact is universal. And this deadly impact is relational. We see in the text where there are these people who say there is no God. And there are these people who look at the people of God. And their relationship with the people of God is one of exploitation and manipulation. And, and condescending to them. And lording over them. And somehow finding sport in mistreating people who are poor and needy. But then finally verse 7. As we close up this psalm, we see good news. There's no way to, there's no way to be like, uh, you know, this is just a fun text, right? This is a heavy text. We don't have the option to approach the text in a way that is complicit with our flesh. In fact, we have to approach the text in a way that hopefully by the grace of God would be combative to our flesh. But thank God there's good news. And it's the only good news. There is a way out. There is a way out from me saying in my heart there is no God. There is a way out from me worshiping false gods. There is a way out. And he says in verse 7, and here's the longing of David as he looks out at his own people and he sees them going through all of their ritual and he sees them attending the gathering and he sees them praying and, and all of the motions that they would go through, the Jewish people would go through just to try to remember. He sees the phylacteries. He sees them with scripture 
tied on their forehead and strings tied around their fingers so that they wouldn't forget and all of the, or the, all of the memorization that they've done. He sees that. And as he looks at them, he says, you're going through all of that. But you're really saying in your heart there is no God. But there's a way out of that. There's a way out of that. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. The word salvation is Yeshua. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Here's, here's the point of the text. We need to be saved. We cannot deliver ourselves from this predicament. David didn't say deliver yourself. David didn't say you better get right. David didn't say you better stop doing this. He didn't say you better clean up your act. He didn't say you better try harder. You're not disciplined enough. You're not smart enough. You're not deep enough. We need to be saved and we cannot save or deliver ourselves from this predicament, which means that we are hopeless and that we are helpless and we are left in our corruption like this, like this branch just out there on the ground that somebody's going to drive over, or somebody's going to crush, somebody's going to blow away with a blower and it's, it's, nobody's going to even know what it is. Left to ourselves, we are a stench, we are a dead carcass, we are a fool, we are a proud, self-sufficient, God-denying heart that wants to be its own God, that says, I wish there was no God so that I could be God. Salvation has come. How do I know salvation has come? Salvation has come out of Israel, this little group of people that formed from nothing but then grew and a promise was made in Genesis 12 that the entire world is going to be blessed through your lineage. The promise of Messiah will come from Israel. Jesus Christ is his name. Out of Israel, a redeemer, a deliverer, a Messiah. This is the longing of David's heart and should be the longing of our heart this morning. This mess that we are, that, that, that we are in and cannot... Resolve can only be resolved if someone will come and save us from that. And no one else can come and save us from that other than Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is the son of God. He is God of very God. He left heaven. He robed himself in human flesh. And he came and walked among men so that people could say, what is God like? He sent his son so you would know, so he could come look you in the eye, so he could grab you by the arm, so he could heal you of your diseases, so he could proclaim truth, so he could teach. And people would say, I've never heard anybody teach like this. So he could live the life that we could not live, so he could fulfill all righteousness, so he could fulfill the law, so he could do everything that God certainly expected of him because he was God of very God and he was completely perfect. And then he, as a perfect sacrifice, laid down his life as payment for our sin because God told Adam and Eve back in the Garden of Eden, the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And they died spiritually then. They ultimately died physically. But we were created to be spiritually alive, to have the life of God that he has breathed in us, flowing through us and out of us. And we were created to live forever. That's why none of us wants to die. And Jesus came 
We were supposed to die for our sin, and he came as a substitute and died in my place for my sin. It's called substitutionary atonement. And then because God was satisfied with Jesus' death, God's like, sin, the sin debt has been paid. My, my son now will be raised up because sin has been defeated through my son. And Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. The Spirit has come, and he works in our heart. And he convicts, and he draws, and he compels. And when you call upon the name of the Lord, and you are saved, he enters into your life, and the old things are passed away, and you have a new interior world, and we call it a new heart. The problem is solved. Because the heart of the problem is our heart. And we say things in our heart, no matter how we act. But when Christ comes in and gives us a new heart and transforms our heart and transforms our inner world and transforms that place that we secretly want to be God into that place where we fully and completely love God, only Jesus Christ can do that. And he can do all that needs to be done and all that is left for us to do is rest in his finished work. And I would beg of you this morning, I would plead with you this morning, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't turn away. Turn to God. Don't walk out of here today saying in your heart that you are your own God. Don't walk out of here today saying in your heart that there is no God. Don't walk out of here today saying no one will be over me because there is a God who is over you. There is a God that you will ultimately answer to. There is a God that we will give an account to. There is a God who has been sent out of Zion and his name is Jesus Christ and he came to save you from that so that you could experience the joy of eternal life. Let me, let me just close with a, a, a couple of thoughts. Let me be the first to confess I want to be God. I want to be God. You probably never heard a preacher say that before. I think you do too. When I get in traffic, I want to be God. I'm the best driver in the world. You should not be in the left lane. I don't care what the speed limit is. And even if you're going to speed limit, Get out of my way. I want to be God. And I can't believe you're holding me up. I want to be God at the drive-thru when they can't just hit a picture of the chicken sandwich, right? Come on. Talk quicker. The, why, why, what did the people in front of me order? Enough for a hundred people? I want to be God at my job. I want to be God at my house. I want to be God in politics. I want my kids to do everything I tell them to do. I'm going to believe everything. I want to be God at home. Spent vacation with my family and you try to try to order your grandkids around. 2023. I may have said this last week. I never, I've never felt so dumb as when I tell my grandkids to do something. You know? 
I, but why? Well, I want them to listen to me. Why? Because I want to be God. I want to be God to my wife. There's a small part of me that would love for her to worship and adore me and obey me and do everything that I say and everything that I want. I want to be God. Yeah, good luck with that. I want to be God over my security. I want to be God over my comfort. I want to be God over my health. I want to be God over my pain. I don't want to worry. I want to be God. I want to be in control. In fact, I would venture to say that every time I complain, that complaint comes from a heart that says, I want to be God. Every time I complain, it comes from a heart that says, if our God and I were in control, I would do things differently. Why do I say that? <laughs> because I want to be God. Secondly, if I stay in that desire to be God, nobody's going to tell me what to do. My, my mind is the, 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 the greatest thing that God ever created, and the thoughts that I have should be the thoughts that, that control the universe. I want to be God. If I stay in that desire, if nothing changes, I am on a collision course with the one who is God, and it will not end well for me. In fact, I promise you that, that it will end tragically. I promise you that it will end miserably if you are here today and you have not come to grips with the fact that you want to be God and you are determined to be God, but now you're coming face to face with the God who is God and you refuse to surrender to him, and you say, I will continue to be God, you are going to, you're going to face a God who is looking down on you as you're saying, nobody is going to be over me telling me what to do. And it is going to end badly and tragically. And I do not say that gleefully. I say that grievingly as I beg you to believe the gospel and come to Jesus Christ. Thirdly, I would encourage you to turn this morning. What are you really saying in your heart? Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Fourthly, and I have five points. Tim Keller said, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. That's what this text is saying. The man has said in his heart, there is no God. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Jesus Christ loved you so much that he laid down his life as your substitute for your sin that you might have a new heart, that you might have a new life, that you might have eternal life. The life that you were created for. Finally, Dane Ortland, in his work on the Psalms said, sin is universal. Every one of us in this room. Every one of us in this room is a sinner. Sin is universal. So, so to think that somehow there's a category of people that he's, that he's trying to zero in on and there's another category of people that, he, that, are, that are kind of exempt. I mean, using the word uh, all kind of speaks to it. None kind of speaks to those issues. Sin is universal. No one is exempt. I continue to quote Orland. But grace is universally available. 
Sin is universal. No one is exempt, but grace is universally available. No one need be exempt. All that is required is a trusting faith in Jesus Christ, the living embodiment of the salvation that came out of Israel. How will you leave today? I, I, hope, I hope that you at least today will leave curious. I hope that you at least today will leave curious. I hope you at least today would say, is there something in that text or that that guy was talking about that could possibly have something to do with where I am right now? Was this just an accident? Was this just a happenstance that on this day we looked at this text this morning? Secondly, how do we leave today? I hope you leave curious I hope you leave aware, as I am aware that I want to be God. I hope you can go look in the mirror, and I hope you can catch yourself when you find yourself in frustration or anger or bitterness or response. I hope you can come to grips with the fact that there literally really is something in you, in the fabric of your being, that wants to be God and control everything. But I also hope that you'll leave today recognizing that that's a bad place to be, and there's a better way. And the way is through a relationship. It's through a relationship. And it's the relationship that you created for. And it will radically transform everything about you in time. It'll transform everything about how you relate to the people around you. And it'll transform everything about how you see the world. And it's through faith in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. My hope this morning is that you will believe the gospel and trust him. Every week we have this symbol of the gospel, communion. It's a time where we take the bread that represents the body of Christ and the juice that represents the blood of Christ, and we, through this symbol, without words, remember Jesus, remember what Jesus has done. It would do us well to remember, if you are a believer this morning, and this is for believers, it would do us well to remember this morning this fist in our heart that says, I want to be God. It would do us well this morning before we come and partake to say, Lord Jesus, I recognize that tendency in my heart and I ask you to forgive me and cleanse me. And again, I ask you afresh and anew to renew me this morning. I would also ask you to examine your heart and where are those areas that you say you believe in God and you believe his word, but you have just completely neglected to follow through on it and your practice is a practice of practical atheism. So I would invite you to come today. Remember Jesus. Remember that you don't have to be the fool who says in his heart there is no God. Because a redeemer salvation for Israel and for the world has come out of Zion. And he restores the fortune of his people. And we can leave here this morning rejoicing and glad because our hearts have been changed. I'm going to pray and then if you would just promptly come and remember the Lord this morning. Let your mind forget everything else and just concentrate and remember the Lord. That is what the bread and the juice are about. It's not a ritual that's salvific. It's not anything that's going to make your week better. It's something that is designed to help us just zone everything out and remember Jesus 
and his love for us and what he has done to demonstrate that love. Father, your word is true. Sometimes your word is brutal. Sometimes your love is brutal. Coming face to face with who we are and where we are and our sin is painful. And, and I pray that you would cause us to uh, be awakened this morning. I pray that you would cause us to hear those words and wonder about our interior world and wonder about all of the things that we are manipulating and trying to control. To wonder about all the people that we might be shunning and avoiding. Because we're God and we just assume see them fry. I pray that you would I pray that you would let us let us feel the misery the misery of our attempt to be God. And I pray that you would let us feel the cool breeze of the joy that can come. Let us hear the glad song of the joy that could come when we rest our hope in salvation. In salvation that has come. I pray that we would trust you today in Jesus' name.